Section 30 of Emily of New Moon by Lucy M. Montgomery. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Leanne Fortune. Section 30. One thing that marked her return, one of those little household epochs that make a keener impression on the memory and imagination than perhaps their real importance warrants, was the fact that she was given a room of her own. Aunt Elizabeth had found her unshared slumber too sweet a thing to be again surrendered. She decided that she could not put up any longer with a squirming bedfellow who asked unearthly questions at any hour of the night. She took it into her head to do so. So, after a long conference with Laura, it was settled that Emily was to have her mother's room, the lookout, as it was called, though it was not really a lookout but it occupied the place in New Moon, looking over the front door to the garden, that the real lookouts did in other Blairwater houses, so it went by that name. It had been prepared for Emily's occupancy in her absence, and when bedtime came on the first evening of her return, Aunt Elizabeth curtly told her that henceforth she was to have her mother's room. All to myself! exclaimed Emily. Yes, we will expect you to take care of it yourself and keep it very tidy. It has never been slept in since the night before your mother went away, said Aunt Laura with a queer sound in her voice, a sound of which Aunt Elizabeth disapproved. Your mother, she said, looking coldly at Emily over the flame of the candle, an attitude that gave a rather gruesome effect to her aquiline features, ran away flouted her family, and broke her father's heart. She was a silly, ungrateful, disobedient girl. I hope you will never disgrace your family by such conduct. Oh, Aunt Elizabeth, said Emily breathlessly, when you hold the candle down like that, it makes your face look just like a corpse. Oh, it's so interesting. Aunt Elizabeth turned and led the way upstairs in grim silence. There was no use in wasting perfectly good admonitions on a child like this. Left alone in her lookout, lighted dimly by the one small candle, Emily gazed about her with keen and thrilling interest. She could not get into bed until she had explored every bit of it. The room was very old-fashioned, like all the new moon rooms. The walls were papered with a design of slender gilt diamonds enclosing golden stars and hung with worked woolen mottoes and pictures that had been supplements in the girlhood of her aunts. One of them, hanging over the head of the bed, represented two guardian angels. In its day, this had been much admired, but Emily looked at it with distaste. I don't like feather wings on angels, she said decidedly. Angels should have rainbowy wings. On the floor was a pretty homespun carpet and round braided rugs. There was a high black bedstead with carved posts, a fat feather bed, and an Irish chain quilt. But, as Emily was glad to see, no curtains. A little table with funny claw feet and brass knob drawers stood by the window, which was curtained with muslin frills. One of the window panes contorted the landscape funnily, making a hill where no hill was. Himley liked this. She couldn't have told why, 
but it was really because it gave the pain an individuality of its own. An oval mirror in a tarnished gilt frame hung above the table. Emily was delighted to find she could see herself in it, all but my boots, without craning or tipping it. And it doesn't twist my face or turn my complexion green, she thought happily. Two high-backed black chairs with horsehair seats, a little washstand with a blue basin and pitcher, and a faded ottoman with woolen roses cross-stitched on it completed the furnishing. On the little mantel were vases full of dried and coloured grasses and a fascinating pot-bellied bottle filled with West Indian shells. On either side were lovable little cupboards with leaded glass doors like those in the sitting room. Underneath was a small fireplace. I wonder if Aunt Elizabeth will ever let me have a little fire here, thought Emily. The room was full of that indefinable charm found in all rooms, where the pieces of furniture, whether old or new, are well acquainted with each other, and the walls and floors are on good terms. Emily felt it all over her as she flitted about, examining everything. This was her room. She loved it already. She felt perfectly at home. I belong here, she breathed happily. She felt deliciously near to her mother, as if Juliet's star had suddenly become real to her. It thrilled her to think that her mother had probably crocheted the lace cover on the round pincushion on the table, and that fat black jar of potpourri on the mantel. Her mother must have compounded it. When Emily lifted the lid, a faint spicy odour floated out. The souls of all the roses that had bloomed through many olden summers at New Moon seemed to be present there in a sort of flower purgatory. Something in the haunting, mystical, elusive odour gave Emily the flash, and her room had received its consecration. There was a picture of her mother hanging over the mantel, a large daguerreotype taken when she was a little girl. Emily looked at it lovingly. She had the picture of her mother which her father had left, taken after their marriage. But when Aunt Elizabeth had brought that from Maywood to New Moon, she had hung it in the parlour, where Emily seldom saw it. This picture, in her bedroom, of the golden-haired, rose-cheeked girl, was all her own. She could look at it, talk to it, at will. Oh, mother, she said, what did you think of when you were a little girl, here like me? I wish I could have known you then, and to think nobody has ever slept here since that last night you did, before you ran away with father. Aunt Elizabeth says you were wicked to do it, but I don't think you were. It wasn't as if you were running away with a stranger. Anyway, I'm glad you did, because if you hadn't, there wouldn't have been any me. Emily, very glad that there was an Emily, opened her lookout window as high as it would go, got into bed and drifted off to sleep, feeling a happiness that was so deep as to be almost pain, as she listened to the sonorous sweep of the night wind among the great trees in Lofty John's bush. When she wrote to her father a few days later, she began the letter, Dear Father and Mother, and I'll always write the letter to you as well as father after this, Mother. I'm sorry I left you out so long. 
but you didn't seem real till that night I came home. I made the bed beautifully next morning. Aunt Elizabeth didn't find a bit of fault with it, and I dusted everything. And when I went out, I knelt down and kissed the doorstep. I didn't think Aunt Elizabeth saw me, but she did, and said, had I gone crazy. Why does Aunt Elizabeth think anyone is crazy who does something she never does? I said, no, it's only because I love my room so much. And she sniffed and said, you'd better love your God. But so I do, dear father and mother, and I love him better than ever, since I have my dear room. I can see all over the garden from it, and into Lofty John's bush, and one little bit of the blay water through the gap in the trees, where the yesterday road runs. I like to go to bed early now. I love to lie all alone in my own room, and make poetry, and think out descriptions of things while I look through the open window at the stars, and the nice, big, kind, quiet trees in Lofty John's bush. Oh, father, dear, and mother, we are going to have a new teacher. Miss Brownell is not coming back. She is going to be married, and Ilsa says that when her father heard it, he said, God help the man, and the new teacher is a Mr. Carpenter. Ilsa saw him when he came to see her father about the school, because Dr. Boneley is a trustee this year, and she says he has bushy grey hair and whiskers. He is married too, and is going to live in that little old house down in the hollow, below the school. It seems so funny to think of a teacher having a wife and whiskers. I am glad to be home. But I miss Dean and the gazing ball. Aunt Elizabeth looked very cross when she saw my bang, but didn't say anything. Aunt Laura says just to keep quiet and go on wearing it. But I don't feel comfortable going against Aunt Elizabeth. So I have combed it all back except a little fringe. I don't feel quite comfortable about it even yet, but I have to put up with being a little uncomfortable for the sake of my looks. Aunt Laura says bustles are going out of style, so I'll never be able to have one, but I don't care because I think they're ugly. Rhoda Stewart will be cross because she was just longing to be old enough to wear a bustle. I hope I'll be able to have a ginger all to myself when the weather gets cold. There is a row of gingers on the high shelf in the cookhouse. Teddy and I had the nicest adventure yesterday evening. We are going to keep it a secret from everybody, partly because it was so nice, and partly because we think we'd get a fearful scolding for one thing we did. We went up to the disappointed house, and we found one of the boards on the windows loose, so we pried it off and crawled in and went all over the house. It is lathed but not plastered, and the shavings are lying all over the floors, just as the carpenters left them years ago. It seemed more disappointed than ever. I just felt like crying. There was a dear little fireplace in one room, so we went to work and kindled a fire in it with shavings and pieces of boards. This is the thing we would be scolded for, likely. And then sat before it on an old carpenter's bench and talked. We decided that when we grew up, we would buy the disappointed house and live here together. Teddy said he supposed we'd have to get married, but I thought maybe we could find a way to manage without going to all that bother. Teddy will paint pictures, and I will write poetry, 
and we will have toast and bacon and marmalade every morning for breakfast, just like with a grange, but never porridge. And we'll always have lots of nice things to eat in the pantry, and I'll make lots of jam, and Teddy is always going to help me wash the dishes, and we'll hang the gazing ball from the middle of the ceiling in the fireplace room, because likely Aunt Nancy will be dead by then. When the fire burned out, we jammed the board into place in the window and came away. Every now and then today, Teddy would say to me, Toast and bacon and marmalade, in the most mysterious tones. And Ilsa and Perry are wild because they can't find out what he means. Cousin Jimmy has got Jimmy Gerbell to help with the harvest. Jimmy Gerbell comes from Overdairy Pondway. There are a great many French there. And when a French girl marries, they call her mostly by her husband's first name, instead of Mrs. like the English do. If a girl named Mary marries a man named Leon, she will always be called Mary Leon after that. But in Jimmy Gerbell's case, it is the other way, and he is called by his wife's name. I asked Cousin Jimmy why, and he said it was because Jimmy Joe was a poor stick of a creature and Bell wore the breeches. But still, I don't understand. Jimmy Joe wears breeches himself, that means trousers. And why should he be called Jimmy Joe Bell instead of her being called Belle Jimmy Joe? just because she wears them too. I won't rest till I find out. Cousin Jimmy's garden is splendid now. The tiger lilies are out. I'm trying to love them because nobody seems to like them at all. But deep down in my heart, I know I love the late roses best. You just can't help loving the roses best. Ilsa and I hunted all over the old orchard today for a four-leaved clover and couldn't find one. Then I found one in a clump of clover by the dairy steps tonight, when I was straining the milk, and never thinking of clovers. Cousin Jimmy says that is the way luck always comes, and it is no use to look for it. It is lovely to be with Ilsa again. We have only fought twice since I came home. I am going to try not to fight with Ilsa any more, because I don't think it is dignified, although quite interesting. But it is hard not to, because even when I keep quiet and don't say a word, Ilsa thinks that's a way of fighting, and gets madder, and says worse things than ever. Aunt Elizabeth says it always takes two to make a quarrel, but she doesn't know Ilsa as I do. Ilsa called me a sneaking albatross today. I wonder how many animals are left to call me. She never repeats the same one twice. I wish she wouldn't clap a saw Perry so much. Clap a saw is a word I learned from Aunt Nancy. Very striking, I think. It seems as if she couldn't bear him. He dared Teddy to jump from the hen house roof across to the pig house roof. Teddy wouldn't. He said he would try it if it had to be done, or would do anybody any good, but he wasn't going to do it just to show off. Perry did it and landed safe. If he hadn't, he might have broken his neck. Then he bragged about it and said Teddy was afraid, and Ilsa turned red as a beet and told him to shut up or she would bite his snout off. She can't bear to have anything said against Teddy, but I guess he can take care of himself. Ilsa can't study for the entrance either. Her father won't let her, 
But she says she doesn't care. She says she's going to run away when she gets a little older and study for the stage. That sounds wicked, but interesting. I felt very queer and guilty when I saw Ilse first because I knew about her mother. I don't know why I felt guilty because I had nothing to do with it. The feeling is wearing away a little now, but I am so unhappy by spells over it. I wish I could either forget it altogether or find out the rights of it, because I am sure nobody knows them. I had a letter from Dean today. He writes lovely letters, just as if I was grown up. He sent me a little poem he had cut out of a paper called The Fringed Gentian. He said it made him think of me. It is all lovely, but I like the last verse best of all. This is it. Then whisper blossom in thy sleep how I may upward climb the alpine path so hard, so steep that leads to heights sublime how I may reach that far-off goal of true and honoured fame and write upon its shining scroll a woman's humble name. When I read that, the flash came and I took a sheet of paper. I forgot to tell you, Cousin Jimmy gave me a little box of paper and envelopes on the sly, and I wrote on it, I, Emily Bird Star, do solemnly vow this day that I will climb the alpine path and write my name on the scroll of fame. Then I put it in the envelope and sealed it up and wrote on it the vow of Emily Bird Star, aged 12 years and 3 months and put it away on the sofa shelf in the garret. I'm writing a murder story now, and I'm trying to feel how a man would feel who was a murderer. It is creepy, but thrilling. I almost feel as if I had murdered somebody. Good night, dear father and mother, your lovingest daughter, Emily. P.S. I have been wondering how I'll sign my name when I grow up and print my pieces. I don't know which would be best. Emily Bird Star in full, or Emily B Star, or E B Star, or E Bird Star. Sometimes I think I'll have a nom de plume, that is, another name you pick for yourself. It's in my dictionary, among the French phrases at the back. If I did that, then I could hear people talking of my pieces right before me, never suspecting, and say just what they really thought of them. That would be interesting, but perhaps not always comfortable. I think I'll be E. Bird's Star. End of section 30. Recording by Leanne Fortune.